one of the things I was thinking about uh, for today, one of the things I've been thinking about for the past few weeks, really, is regarding what really the Lord wanted to share with his church this morning. And throughout the few weeks, the Lord just continued to kind of implant and just download within my heart things specifically regarding um, an area of passage out of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 to 21. Five verses and only five verses. But these five verses are absolutely loaded, loaded with foundational and essential truths for every Christ follower. And we have the privilege of moving into that today. So if you do have your Bibles, I encourage you to open up. The scriptures will be on the board to my right and to my left here as well. But before we do anything, let's open up in a word of prayer. Lord, I thank you for this place. I thank you for your people. I thank you for your church, Lord, your bride. Father, we're here this morning to hear from your word, to hear from you. And Father, I ask and pray that you would saturate our hearts with these promises and these truths and these realities with regard to who we are in you, Christ, as a new creation, how we've been reconciled unto a holy God because of you, Christ. The ministry that you've entrusted to us, which is this ministry that we're going to be unpacking today, the ministry of reconciliation, and how this was achieved through what took place at the cross. Father, what a gift, what a privilege it is to be able to meet in this place. And God, I just ask and pray that this morning, people have come in with heavy hearts, rough work weeks, challenges maybe within the family, challenges within the marriage, maybe children that have gone sideways, all of these things, Lord. And we come together as a body to sit at your feet, Christ, and to hear from you. I pray that you would challenge us today, Holy Spirit. I pray that you would encourage us today. This is your time for your glory, and we give this to you in your mighty, precious name, Christ Jesus Amen. So we talked about a little bit at opening up about these, uh, this passage of Scripture. Again, if you're here today and, and you are not a Christ follower, you, maybe you came with a friend, maybe you came here visiting, the good news is you're in the right place. You have a front row ticket to hear the details, the message that has the ability to change your life forever. A message that has the ability to give you the deep insights of what God's will is for you and for your life. And you're here this morning in this place by God's providence. So as we open up the word today, I want to go through just some context. We're going to be unpacking 2 Corinthians chapter 5. There is a lot that has happened leading up to this passage. So Paul, the writer of 2 Corinthians, just some history. Paul planted the church of Corinth through the providence of God. And what's happening is Paul in, uh, is writing to the church. He's responding to the church in 2 Corinthians. Let's go back to the epistle prior, which is 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians, what's happening is Paul is addressing serious, serious issues that are taking place within the church. Paul has a heart for the church. He has a shepherd's heart for the church. He's addressing issues that have crept into the church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, chapter 3, he addresses these issues about factions, divisions that have taken place within the church. Some people said, hey, I follow after this guy, 
And others would say, oh, I follow after this person. And Paul would correct them and say, is the body of Christ divided? Absolutely not. In chapter 5, Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians this serious issue of sexual immorality that has crept into the church, Corinth being surrounded by a wicked, wicked culture. The culture bled into the church. And what happens is Paul addresses this head-on with love. But he addresses these issues. Chapter 6, he addresses what's happening as Christian and Christian are taking one another to court, suing each other in a public court setting. In chapter 11, he's addressing this issue with the improper taking of the Lord's Supper. The list goes on and on and on. Verse uh, chapter 14, he addresses the proper exercising of spiritual gifts that have been distributed to the church. In chapter 15, he addresses this improper understanding of the resurrection of the dead in Christ. Paul has the heart of a shepherd, but he also gives them a strong, urgent course correction, course correction direction. He says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 34. Come back to your senses and stop sinning. There are some who are ignorant about God, and I say this to your shame. Heavy words. But he's sharing this in love. Paul cared far too much about the church of Corinth to continue to see them go down a direction that led to a place of disastrous outcome. He cared far too much about the church to let that continue. How do you think the church responded to that message. Well, the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians there were false teachers that had infiltrated the church. Paul would call them false apostles. They have infiltrated the church. They start to mar the reputation of Paul. They begin to challenge his apostleship. They begin to challenge Paul's ministry. Gloves are off. And now Paul... This has to be one of the most gut-wrenching, one of the most difficult epistles that he ever had to write throughout the entirety of his ministry, if not the most difficult. Paul defends his ministry. He defends his apostleship. He defends the ministry that God has called him to, all the while reminding the church about the foundational and essential truths for every Christian And that applies to you and to me today. Four points that we'll go through today as we unpack the message. The first is that what what does it mean to be a new creation in Christ? What does it mean for us to take on this new identity? Secondly, how is it that a person can be reconciled unto a perfectly holy, perfectly just, perfectly righteous God? The third point is what has been entrusted to you and I? As Christians, what ministry has been entrusted to us? This ministry of reconciliation. And the fourth is this concept, this reality of the great exchange to the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ at Calvary. What does that mean for us today? As we dive in, I'm going to ask if you're able to, if you're comfortable to, to stand to your feet. We have the privilege of reading the word of God in the house of God. We have the verses uh, on the screen behind me. I'll take the odd verses. If you can take the even verses, we'll start in verse 17. And then we're going to go through it and we're going to have 
a great morning this morning going through the content. Verse 17 reads, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, and the new is here. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. And God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's kick this off. Verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. This concept leads to our first point. This reality leads to our first point of being a new creation in Christ. Think back to that moment in time where you truly repented of your sin. What does that mean? It means that you changed your mind about the way that you saw your sin in light of who God is, a holy God. Think about the moment that you placed your faith in Christ. Where were you? Who were you with? Those are secondary details to, the, to this reality of what took place in that moment in time. Do you guys remember the story about Nicodemus in John chapter 3? Nicodemus has a meeting with Jesus. And Jesus tells him, very truly, I tell you that no one can see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. At that moment that you repented of your sin, at the moment that I repented of my sin, at the moment that I placed my faith in Christ, something incredible happened. I became a new creation. I was born again. I was regenerated. I now walk in newness of life. You now walk in newness of life. Let's talk about that for a moment, what it means to have a new life in and through Christ. The Bible says in Romans chapter 6, verse 6, for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin. This is a reality, and this is true for every single person alive today. The Bible says in Romans chapter 6 that we are a slave to something. It's heavy language. We are a slave to what we obey. If you are outside of Christ, if you are not in Christ positionally, the Bible says that you are a slave to sin, which leads to death. Nate brought that up, that beautiful point up earlier as as we wrapped up our worship. But now think about this. If you are in Christ, you are a slave to obedience, which leads to righteousness. You are ultimately a slave unto God. That's an incredible reality. And that's a truth for every single person who is in Christ. Romans chapter 6, verse 22. But now you have been set free from sin, have become slaves of, of God. The benefit you reap leads to holiness And the result is eternal life. Let's talk about for a moment what it means to enter into a new position, a new standing before a holy God. What happened is at the moment of your conversion, at the moment of that time when you repented and you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you entered into a new standing, a new position before a perfectly holy, perfectly just, perfectly righteous God. The Bible says that you were justified. That means that you were acquitted of your guilt. I was acquitted of my guilt. And I was guilty because of my sin. 
and I stand in a position of righteous standing before a holy God because of who I am in Christ, and don't miss this, church. He treats us this way. He treats us that way. What a beautiful reality. But what happened before this took place, the Bible says that we were hostile towards God, hostile towards the things of God. We were at enmity before a holy God. We were considered as objects of wrath, children of darkness. But something changed. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Don't miss that. You have peace with God because of who you are in Christ. And that is an incredible truth. Lastly, what happened at the moment of time at your conversion, someone, that's right, someone, the Holy Spirit being a person, took up residence within you. The Holy Spirit indwells you, Christian helping you. But it goes so, so much further beyond that. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 to 14 reads, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit, a promise of the inheritance until the redemption of those who are in God's possession to the praise of his glory. What does that mean? You are marked by the Holy Spirit. You are sealed by God's Spirit. It is a promise. It is a guarantee of your salvation. Wow. That's a reality. That is a truth. Christian, you're sealed. You are sealed by the Spirit of God. You are a new creation because you are in Christ. Let's continue in verse 18. All of this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. All of what? All of what is from God? Everything spoken about in verse 17. All of those truths are from God. But how is it? This is the question of the great question of the morning. How is it that a perfectly just, perfectly righteous, perfectly holy God can reconcile a lost, separated, doomed sinner unto himself. This is the importance of unpacking the message of the gospel. The Bible says that what happened is sin entered into the world through one man, one man named Adam. You and I inherited something called a sin nature. No human in all of history is exempt from it. Nobody. We inherited something called a sin nature. David said it even more specifically. He said, I was conceived into sin. He wasn't pointing at an illegitimate relationship between his biological father and biological mother. He's saying, no, I was conceived into sin. You and I have been conceived into sin. There's a common denominator in and through that truth. But God, in his mercy, in his love, in his grace, in his compassion, this is where we look at the broad scope of all the attributes that God carries. We know he's perfectly holy, he's perfectly just, he's perfectly righteous, but he's perfectly merciful, perfectly gracious, he's long-suffering, he's compassionate, he's gentle, he desires that all would be saved, all would be reconciled, and that all would receive eternal life. He saw us in our broken, separated state that we existed within. God, in his love, sends his one and only son, Jesus Christ, into the world. 
God the Father manifesting himself in and through the Son. And he lived a perfect life. And this is important that we unpack this. It wasn't that he worked really hard at it. Religions all across the world believe that if you work hard enough at it, you have secured your salvation. Nothing could be further from the truth. But Jesus lived a perfect life. He lived a life that you and I could never live. And it wasn't that he worked really hard at it. The Bible says that he is holy. He is without sin. He could not sin. He is God incarnate. He lived the perfect life. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He preached that the kingdom of heaven was near. But he was rejected. He was despised. He was a man of sorrows. But he, amid all those things, don't miss this church, he yielded perfectly to the will of his heavenly father. Perfectly. Without fault. Even yielding to the will of the father and going to the cross to pay for your sin and for my sin. And the Bible says that when he was on that tree, it was the Lord's will leading up to the crucifixion. It was the Lord's will and at the crucifixion to crush him. Mm. It was the Lord's will to crush his son. How is this? It's important that we keep reading. Verse 11, the father's righteous servant would justify many, we talked about that big word, and would bear our iniquities. When Jesus was at the cross, he became a sin offering, and the Bible says that the righteous, hot, holy wrath of the Father was poured out upon his precious, beloved, one and only Son. And the Bible says that Jesus cries out as he's pinned to that tree, God, God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? And Jesus gives up his spirit. And the Bible says that what took place, don't miss this, at the cross, in and through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, the wrath of God was appeased and God's justice was satisfied. That was it. There's nothing else. Nothing else could do what Jesus Christ, no one else could do what Jesus Christ did. And what happened is Jesus was pulled from that tree. He was placed in Joseph's tomb and God's spirit raised him from the dead. He appeared to his disciples on multiple occasions. And what happens, the Bible says that he ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of the father interceding on behalf of our sins. And if a person who's exposed, when the person is exposed to this reality, to this truth, repents of their sin and places their faith in Christ, guess what happens? They're reconciled unto God. They are reconciled unto a holy, just, loving, gracious God. So we've covered a lot in that first 10 minutes. What does that mean for you and I? We know that we're reconciled unto God as a Christian. What's been entrusted to us now? We've been given a ministry. And the ministry specifically is something called the ministry of reconciliation. Let's go ahead and unpack this in verse 19 and verse 20. Verse 19 reads that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled unto 
to God. God, in reconciling the world to himself, provides a means for the sinner to no longer be alienated from God. We talked about that earlier. To no longer be separated from a perfectly holy, perfectly just God. And verse 20 says, those who repent and place their faith in Christ are not only reconciled, but now you guys and I have been entrusted to something. We've been given an ambassadorship. We've been given something that we are called to share with the culture, with the people in the world in which we live. Now listen to this. It's important that we unpack what it means to be an ambassador. An ambassador does not carry their own message. An ambassador is a diplomat. It's a representative who's carrying a message given to them by their king or their sovereign. The readers of this would have known, just as we do today, what ambassadorship truly represents. An ambassador is someone that has a very important message. They don't represent themselves. But notice the urgency of the plea. Why is there such an urgency within this plea that Paul is exhorting the church of Corinth to remember and to hold on to? Well, the Bible says that the Lord desires that none would perish, but all would have eternal life. But there's also a plea to the person who is not in Christ because, one per- because a person knows what's ahead for that person. And in love and in compassion, in the attributes that God carries, we do the same and we plead to a culture. We plead to a people that are not in Christ. And there is an urgency, church. There is a, an urgency in the days in which we live today. We see how short life is, how fleeting life is. And as Christians, you and I are called to be ambassadors in the dark days in which we live today. This is the application. I want to share this with you, and I just want to make sure that I I, I preface this. In sharing this, this is something that I have sought the Lord in prayer with because there's a lot of heavy points within the application for the church this morning based upon practical reality that we're living in today as a body of Christ. You see it. What do you see happening around us? What do you see in the world around us, in the culture and society around us? What we see is we see a culture. We see a people that are sprinting down the broad road. And as the sprinting down the broad road continues, what happens is there's a celebration of sin. There's a flaunting, there's a parading of sin. And it's on a platform for everyone to see. We see this happening in the world in the days in which we're living today. In 2022 and 2023, we spent, in 2022, we spent time up at the Capitol, up in Sacramento. What happened is there was an onslaught. I'm talking a heavy, heavy onslaught of bills that were moving through legislation aggressively, relentlessly targeting the life of the unborn. Let me tell you what I saw there. I saw the church show up even it wasn't the whole church. I saw the church show up. Now paint this picture in your mind. It is extremely intimidating to walk into a room with assembly men and women on their big high stands and to come to the desk and to say, I plead with you to vote no on that bill. I didn't make it in the room because the line, there were thousands of people in line. The atheist walks up to the podium 
And she says, I beg you, vote no on this bill, which is a direct attack on the sanctity of life. Do you know how much courage that takes? How much boldness that takes? Those bills move through to judiciary committees. They move through to senators. They land on the desk of Gavin Newsom for sign-off. We see things happening at rapid speed church. We see what happens in a culture where even going to a baseball game these days means that you could be exposed to something that you would call evil, wicked, as there's open and blatant mockery of the crucifixion of Christ on the property of the stadium of the LA Dodgers. We don't have to look very far, do we? It's a reality. We see what happens in a culture where there's a infatuation that is demonically charged with breeding confusion with regard to a child's gender assigned to them at birth or at the point of conception by God. By God, not by man, but by God. What is happening? Do we not see it? Things are accelerating. Things are moving quicker and quicker and quicker and quicker. And as the church, I want to encourage you with this. I heard this from one of my favorite preachers. He said, these are the worst of days. These are the best of days. Because as the body of Christ, we get to be ambassadors in a world that is moving down this broad road. What what does it mean to be an ambassador, practically? Think about who you have influence with or influence over or who you correspond with within your workplaces, within your neighborhoods, within Starbucks at your favorite barista. The woman who's worked so hard at Stater Brothers and you see her every day at the front counter and she's just working so hard all the time. You build relationships with those people and they see something different in you. They see Christ in you and you get to share your faith. What a blessing that is. So amid of all these realities, the things that we're seeing around us, what's happening is we can suffer, we can succumb to apathy. I have. And the Holy Spirit convicted me of it. We can suffer from indifference. We can, su- we can suffer from becoming cold and callous towards a culture that is sprinting down this broad road. And I want to put some application into this. You guys remember the story of Jonah? Our buddy Jonah. I love the guy. He reminds me a lot of myself. You guys remember what happens with Jonah when Jonah is called by the Lord to go to a place called Nineveh. And he's called to declare something to that nation. You guys remember what Jonah did? Did Jonah say, hey, I'm fully on board. I am fully committed. Lord, buckle up. Let's roll. Let's do this thing. How did he respond to that? He got on a boat in Joppa and he went the different direction. And the Lord in his long suffering and his forbearance, not only toward Jonah, but towards the people of Nineveh, What happens in that moment? The Lord stirs up supernaturally a storm. Jonah comes forward and says, hey guys, I'm the one responsible for all this carnage that you guys are seeing. Just throw me in the water. The men on the boat realize that Jonah served the one true living God and they pray that the Lord would not hold it against him to throw him overboard. But they did it. 
And the big fish comes and swallows Jonah. And Jonah is in the belly of the whale for three days. Can you imagine what what he experienced in there? The Bible very specifically shares the prayer that Jonah prayed unto the Lord. So now Jonah gets vomited up on the beach. And Jonah walks in, I'm sorry, Jonah's commissioned by God a second time. How does Jonah respond that time? All right, Lord, I'm going, I'm in. Can you imagine this scene? I wish I could have seen it. Jonah rolls into Nineveh. Imagine what he looked like. Imagine what he smelt like. I picture he had a bleached blonde, like surfer afro with clothes that were bleached because he was in the stomach of a belly of a whale for, for three nights. He rolls into Nineveh and he preaches the shortest sermon in the entire Old Testament. Shortest sermon. 40 days and Nineveh will be completely destroyed. I picture Jonah almost saying it with a little bit of a smirk. Maybe a little bit of kind of a, I'm out. How did the people of Nineveh respond to that? Who were the people of Nineveh? They were the Assyrians. They were a brutal, brutal people. Known for their brutality when they would take prisoners of war. Things that are hard to mention in this room. But the people of Nineveh, they humbled themselves. They put on sackcloth. They fasted. They even clothed the livestock in sackcloth. Animal hide turned inside out so you feel it all over your body and it's uncomfortable. You're humbling yourself, placing yourself in a position of humility of a holy God, before a holy God. So Jonah humbles himself. How does the king respond? The king, fully on board, issues and mandates a fast, mandates no water, no food. He mandates that no one can eat, no one can drink, the livestock have to wear sackcloth, and the king sits in the ash heap and says, maybe, just maybe, the Lord will relent. And so what happens now in this scene, Jonah is on the mountain or on the hillside, and what takes place is God relents. Can you imagine this for a moment, what this would look like in America today or California today? Imagine what it would look like if a governor, not just Gavin Newsom, and by the way, it's important that we continue to pray and pray and pray for our leaders. Whether we agree with what they're doing or not, it's so important that we pray for those in positions of authority. We're actually man- we're mandated to do that, according to the book of Timothy. But now think about what it would look like if Gavin Newsom had a, a message broadcast go on saying, hey, we're fasting, we're praying, sackcloth it up, guys, and hopefully the Lord will relent. What would it look like if it happened in the White House with Joe Biden and Kamala Harris? I pray that that will happen. It happened in Nineveh. It can happen today. If a people will humble themselves and seek the Lord, nothing is impossible. But one of the things that I want to share with you is just like Jonah. Let me read this to you with Jonah's response to the Lord's relenting and withholding judgment. Jonah says this, He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take my life. It's better for me to die than to live. 
what did Jonah succumb to? He succumbed to apathy. He succumbed to indifference. You and I, church, can succumb to the very same thing in the days in which we live. We can become hardened. We can become calloused. We can become indifferent towards the people that are lost. I was there. And the Lord convicted me of that and reminded me, son, go back to that story in the book of Jonah. See yourself there. And I pray now the Lord continues to give me his eyes and his, and his ears and his mind towards this culture that we live in. And let me, let me share this last application point. Satan desires nothing more than for you and I, Christian, to be off mission. He desires nothing more for you and I to be off course. He desires nothing more for you and I than for you and I to abandon the duty, the assignment, the commissioning that has been given to us by God. Nothing more. He will even use apathy. He will even use indifference. It's so important as a body of Christ that we stay on guard against that. And we do not grow apathetic, but we see people as the Father sees them. He desires that they would be reconciled unto himself. Let's finish in verse 21. Verse 21, this is, this is the grand finale. This is Paul tying this whole beautiful reality and truth up with a bow on top. And he says this, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's read that and let's put that in a framework. The Bible is not saying that Jesus became a sinner on the cross. This is teaching that's unfortunately taking place throughout certain churches. The Bible is saying that Jesus Christ bore our sins in his body on that tree. Whose sins? Garrett's sins. Whose sins? Our sin. Not his own. He was perfect. He was holy. But he bore our sin in his body on that tree. He became our sin offering. On the cross, listen to this point. This is important. This is regarding the great exchange, the substitutionary death of Christ on the cross. On the cross, the Father treated Jesus as if he had lived your life. As, he, as if he had lived the life of Garrett Castro. So that he could treat you and he could treat Garrett Castro as if we had lived the life of Jesus without sin. And what has been credited to us? What has been imputed to us? His righteousness. And we stand in a righteous position before God because of this truth. So I want to invite the band up as we get ready to wrap up. But through going through those four points of what it means, what it looks like for you and I to be a new creation. We are a new creation because we are in Christ. What it means to be reconciled unto God. What it means for us to carry this ministry of reconciliation. And what it means for the reality of this beautiful truth of the great exchange that took place at the cross of Calvary. So now I want to give everyone some homework. The homework tomorrow morning. Some of you are going to get up at 3 o'clock in the morning. That's early. 4 o'clock in the morning. God bless you, by the way. 3 o'clock in the morning. 
four o'clock in the morning, maybe it's seven, maybe it's eight, maybe it's nine. I have, a, I have a, a homework assignment for you tonight. On your iPhone or your phone or whatever you use for your wake-up alarm call, I want you guys to do me a favor, and if you can do this, your, your alarm at 5.30 is going to go off. And within that, you can make a note. It's kind of like a, a cool little iPhone upgrade. I'm just learning about it right now. But you can put this in there, and I want you just to, to, to do this. Today, I'm an ambassador for Jesus Christ. Whether it's your workplace, whether it's at the grocery store, whether it's at the nursery, whether it's at work, wherever you guys go, you are ambassadors for Christ. And the second challenge I have for you is be intentional about it. Begin building relationships with these people that you come in contact with. And as you build those relationships, sharing your faith, sharing your story is something that can happen in the boardroom of your workplace, in the warehouse of the logistics company, on the grounds of the nursery, at home, wherever it may be. And that's something I just want to encourage and challenge a church with this morning so we do not forget what's been entrusted to us. Let me close in a word of prayer. Lord, I thank you for this time that we had with you this morning. I thank you for your word. I thank you for these truths, Lord, that, that just remind us, God, that we are in a rightful standing before you, Father, because of who we are in your Son, Jesus Christ. And Father, when we, when we wake up tomorrow and all throughout our week and our month and the years to come, I pray and ask that you would continue to give us a burden for a culture, for a people that are lost, that are not in you. And use us, Father. I ask and pray that you would give us what the early church in Acts chapter 4 prayed for. Boldness and courage to share our faith with those in the world around us. Lord, we love you. We bless you. We honor you with this time. In your mighty, precious name, Christ Jesus. Amen.